only going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Hello, this week's edition of The Naked Scientists comes to you from California. And that's because we recently won Best Radio Show at the 29th Global Media Awards, which were presented in Los Angeles. So having finally made it to Hollywood, perfect face for radio and all that, we thought we'd spend some time checking out the science that LA and San Diego have to offer, including how inspiration from Star Wars is helping scientists to explore where no one has gone underwater before. In our last grant proposal to the National Science Foundation, we wanted to present a color graphic of these devices. And my colleague actually took the Death Star and <laughs> shrunk it down, and he created a picture where he had about 20 of these Death Stars communicating with each other. So, in fact, we're not that far away. George Jaffe, who's designing a fleet of underwater robot Death Stars to unlock the secrets of the deep ocean. And also on the way, how Facebook could affect your weight. And what we found was that if your friend becomes obese, it increases the likelihood that you'll become obese. It's not just your friend that matters. It's your friend's friend and even your friend's friend's friend. In other words, people we don't know and have never met can change their behavior and it's going to ripple through the network and have an impact on us. Matthew Fowler, who will be explaining how to make friends and influence their eating habits. And on the subject of eating, in a rather unusual kitchen science, we'll also be finding out how you can x-ray yourself with some of this. That's right, sticky tape. And you can find out how to make it irradiate you in just a moment. I'm Chris Smith, and you're listening to The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. It's ironic that we know more about the surface of Mars than we do about what goes on in our own planet's oceans. But here's a man who's on a mission to change all that with a fleet of aquatic robots that can go where we can't. My name is Jules Jaffe, and I am a scientist, research oceanographer here at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Over the past decade, we've developed a rather large vehicle, something on the order of a Volkswagen a Beetle-sized vehicle, which has the capability of adjusting its buoyancy. And on it, we put a laser and we put some very sensitive cameras, and we can put that off the ship. It weighs almost a ton. So it's hardly something you could go out on your, um, on your rowboat and put in the water. We need a fairly large ship. And we've learned a lot of interesting things. But the problem we've kept coming up against with this, and it becomes more and more obvious, the more we process our data and the more we think about it, is that we're just sampling one place at one time. And even though we get a nice picture from that place and time, and there are inferences we can make, we're starting to work on distributed sensor networks, where instead of having just one sampler in one place at one time, we've got sort of a small army of these things, and they're all going up and down in the water, and they're all sampling, and they're all sampling different places at different times. And if we know where they are, and we know when they're there, and we have the appropriate sensors on them, we can start to reconstruct this three-dimensional distribution of these organisms and actually look at mechanism as opposed to just looking at more or less existence. How do you get them to talk to each other? Because a major problem with underwater communication, as, as submariners know very well, you can't get radio signals through water terribly easily. So how do you keep them in touch with each other? Well, the ocean, as you've already highlighted, is particularly opaque to electromagnetic radiation. But acoustics, on the other hand, as has been known by 
animals that have evolved over hundreds of millions of years can in fact go far. And so our plan is to have these vehicles localizing each other acoustically. And of course, we can communicate with one of them that is fairly close to us, and then they can distribute that message among the entire group. By relaying this information, we think we can evolve sensor systems which can sense tens of kilometers instead of maybe just hundreds of meters. Would they be carried by ocean currents? You deploy a sort of array of these things over a certain distance and then let the the natural current move them along. Precisely, and you've actually had a a wonderful insight into one of the uh, advantages of our technology is that we would like to be in the frame of reference of the organism itself. So when you're sitting up on a ship and the thing's bobbing up and down and you stick something in the water, that thing's going to be moving around. So we found out a long time ago that it makes more sense to put the vehicle in the water and let it sort of go with the flow, as we say, and to have maybe tens or even a hundred of these things going with the flow allows us not only to take a snapshot of their evolving environment, but also to track them. And there are many enigmas in oceanography which we don't understand having to do with small animals that say are born on shore and they have a plagic part of their life where they go out to sea, maybe for three months, little baby barnacle or something like that, and somehow they get back. And to be honest, I don't have an idea how they do that. And most of the people I know who study these things don't have an idea how they do that. So we can not only study this sort of 10-kilometer area, but we can watch it evolve and be sort of transported in time and maybe start to unravel some of these riddles of how organisms uh, survive in the ocean. This presumably is what you're actually building at the moment. Is that going to be one of these vehicles? That's correct. So what we're looking at here, Chris, is something on the size of a soccer ball, which has been cut in half, and we're looking inside at the electronics of this device. It looks like something that should be in Star Wars, actually. But <laughs> well, talk there's, us there's a what good story about that, actually, because in our last grant proposal to the National Science Foundation, we wanted to present a color graphic of these devices. And my colleague actually took the Death Star... <laughs> and shrunk it down, and he created a picture where he had about 20 of these Death Stars communicating with each other. So, in fact, we're not that far away. But is that the right message to be sending out because you're actually trying to save the Earth? Yeah, destroy that's correct. It. But how does it work? Okay, so basically what we have here is a pretty simple thing. It's a soccer ball with a bunch of electronics inside of it, and the soccer ball is thick enough so that we can send it down to about 80 meters of depth without imploding. And the computer has sensors that tell it what the depth of the vehicle is. So by adjusting its buoyancy, its volume, uh, in, in the ocean, we can actually send it down and keep it at a certain depth in the sea. And what we also have on this vehicle, on the bottom here, is an acoustic transmitter and a receiver. We call that a transducer. And it can send sound and receive sound. And these are actually modems. So they're actually communicating devices, which allows these vehicles to talk to each other and they can actually range off of each other. So that allows us, knowing their depth and knowing how far they are from each other, to estimate their three-dimensional positions. So now imagine a fleet of maybe 100 of these things slowly descending in the sea, localizing off each other, each equipped with some method of sensing plankton density or perhaps other things like zooplankton using acoustics, and using this hundred or so samples, time-varying samples, we can now create a three-dimensional time-varying record of the evolution of, say, a volume that might be more like five kilometers by five kilometers by this 80-meter deep, uh, it's not a cube, but 
this volume. How long does it take you to develop something like this, from concept to getting something that you can put into the Pacific out there? Well, you've touched a very tender subject with me. So uh, you might have noticed I have sort of a bit of comedy associated with my personality. So what I tell my students is that if, if you're pregnant, you're guaranteed in nine months. But if you're an engineer and you're building a vehicle, it could be 10 years. And so uh, we're sort of giving birth. In fact, this has been an exciting week for us because 10 years from the inception of this, we've now started to test these things in the ocean with the modem communication. And uh, it's really exciting. But by the time I, I tell our students that science is not something if you want immediate gratification, because the time you think of a thing, write the proposal, perhaps get it rejected a few times before it's funded, do the research, get the results, process the data, publish it and go to colleagues and tell them what you've done. It can often be sort of a seven to ten year period. It's comforting to know that even high-powered scientists like Star Wars too. That was underwater robot designer George Jaffe from the Scripps Institute at the University of California at San Diego. Now, one of the main things that we have to thank the oceans for is allowing life to get started on Earth in the first place. But where did the building blocks, the complex organic chemicals that make life possible, actually come from in the first place? The Chicago scientist Howard Urey thought that they probably formed on the early Earth, and this spawned an amazing experiment – the results of which turned up recently again, 50 years later, in Jeff Barder's laboratory. In the early uh, part of the 20th century, several people had proposed that organic compounds were made uh, directly on the early Earth and this formed a so-called prebiotic soup. And eventually in this uh, maturing prebiotic soup, uh, somehow life arose. But up to uh, the time of, of Yuri's thinking on this, no one had succeeded in making or demonstrating how you could make organic compounds in a simulated Earth environment. So Yuri's idea that you had a different atmosphere was a new one, and he presented a lecture at the University of Chicago in 1952, and one of the people in the audience was a young graduate student, Stanley Miller, who was intrigued by this experiment and afterwards went to Yuri and uh, suggested that he do this experiment for his Ph.D. thesis. So what did he do? Well, the first thing that Yuri said was, no, it was too risky an experiment for a graduate student to carry out. But Stanley persevered. And the first thing they had to consider was what kind of apparatus or how do you test this idea. So they decided to come up with the apparatus you see here in front of you, which is designed to mimic the ocean-atmosphere uh, interaction on the early Earth. So you have one flask in which you have uh, water, and this water uh, is boiled, and it goes up and circulates into this other flask, which is full of gas, which is considered to be a model of the atmosphere. So that would have contained some hydrogen, some ammonia, and some methane to simulate the environment of the early Earth? That's correct. So you'd have methane ammonia in this flask here, which is, represents the atmosphere. And then you see these two electrodes. These electrodes is where you could apply this spark which would simulate lightning. So how would he have actually made the sparks there? Well, to make a spark, he would have used this thing here called a Tesla coil, which is uh, uh, something very similar to you see in Frankenstein movies, which generates a, an electric discharge. I'm going to plug this in right now, and you can hear this. So now you take this, app, uh, this Tesla coil and you apply it directly to the electrodes, and that generates a, a spark inside the flask where the gases are, and 
This is the way energy is injected into the system. So when he sparked the mixture like that, what did he find? He let the spark uh, run uh, and he boiled the water last for about a week. And one of the things he noticed right away is this whole thing turned brown. It got really goopy. And one of the remarkable things was that it contained a number of amino acids. And amino acids are the components that make up proteins in all living organisms. And they're considered to be essential molecules for life. And so in this simple experiment, he'd taken methane ammonia and hydrogen in the presence of water and sparked it and made the building blocks of proteins, a remarkable experiment. But what's amazing about this is that he actually saved aliquots or portions of this water solution from his original experiments. And we didn't realize this till earlier this year when we found some old boxes of his in my laboratory and inside them were these little vials that were clearly marked to show that they came from these early 1953 experiments. So did you say, let's see what the power of modern chemistry can tell us about what's actually in these flasks? I was extremely interested in what these might tell us today using the modern analytical tools we have at our disposal. I had two motivations in that. Uh, uh, Stanley died last year, and um, I, I wanted to go back and revisit and see what the diversity of compounds actually was in his experiment that he may have missed. And more importantly, we realized we also had samples from a, a couple of other variants of the apparatus that he'd not really adequately investigated at all. He'd done some preliminary analyses, but had not done a very rigorous uh, analysis of the products from those apparatus. And I was really intrigued by those, especially one of them, which we thought might represent an early volcanic system on the early Earth. When you went back and analyzed the samples he'd stored, what did you find? Well, what was interesting is that the ones that, from what we call the classic apparatus, like you see in front of us here, we pretty much showed that the major amino acids were just like he'd found before. Uh, and then there were a whole number of lesser amino acids. Uh, and so we could expand the inventory of compounds that he had actually made to, and we more or less tripled the number that he'd found. Putting all that together, what does this tell us about the early Earth? Apart from the fact that Stanley Miller could well have been right, but what does this tell us about where the building blocks of life probably came from and the environment on the early Earth that gave rise to them? Today, many geochemists think that the atmosphere as a whole was not reducing, uh, did not contain methane, ammonia, and hydrogen like Stanley used in his original experiment. And as a result, you were left with the puzzle again, where did the raw materials uh, necessary for the original life come from? The variant of this that he had only partly tested and we reinvestigated uh, shows that if you had a localized uh, environment, such as a, an island volcanic system on the early Earth, and you were releasing volcanic gases in that, they'd be immediately subjected to volcanic lightning, and these compounds would have been synthesized in a localized environment rather than a global environment. So you can imagine early Earth being covered by hundreds of these little volcanic islands acting as little prebiotic factories. And so all of them would be contributing to the prebiotic soup. And I think this demonstrates that the idea of making compounds directly on the early Earth via processes that Miller imagined in 1953 is still very much relevant today.
It just makes you wonder, doesn't it, what other scientific gems might be lurking on the storeroom shelves of science labs elsewhere around the globe. That was Jeff Barder showing me Stanley Miller's experiments from the 1950s, in which he showed me how some of the building blocks of life could have formed on the early Earth. Now, on this special Californian edition of The Naked Scientist, it's time to get experimental, and what you'll need is a reel of sticky tape and a dark room. Here's Ben Valsler. Welcome to a very, very special kitchen science coming all the way from the University of California in Los Angeles. I'm here with Dr. Carlos Camera, and he's got a very special little trick to do that hopefully people can do at home. Now, we're surrounded by some really high-tech physics gear here. What do people need to try out this experiment at home? Well, it's actually really, really simple. All you need is a roll of sticky tape. Almost any tape will do. And... Uh, then what you need to do is go to a very dark room, sit in this dark room for a little bit until you start seeing all the light leaks that you have. Once you start seeing all these light leaks, try to get rid of them. And then after that, peel the tape and look at where you're, it's separating from the roll. And it should sound something like this. There we go. I'm peeling tape right here. This is really quite wasteful of sellotape. Uh, do you think we might be able to use it again, or should people just be prepared to cover themselves with tape and perhaps throw it away? No, no, absolutely. If they want to do it very carefully and they're concerned about uh, conserving tape, they should do it from uh, unstick it from one roll and, and roll it in another roll, and they can do it back and forth. And they should be looking very carefully at where it's separated from the roll. Okay, so people need to find the darkest room they've got in their house, sit there for 10 minutes or so to let their eyes adjust, and then make sure there's no light sneaking in round the curtains and no standby lights on or anything like that. Then unroll a roll of sellotape or any sticky tape quite quickly and just watch where the tape meets the roll and see what happens. We'll come back to you later on in the show to let you know what you should see. And they'll also be showing you how you can make the same trick, do something even more amazing which is to produce X-rays. Thank you, Ben. Are you a fan of Facebook? If you are, then you might want to watch out who you make friends with because new research shows that your friends and even your friends' friends' friends can make you fat. That's what emerged when James Fowler began to analyse the data from the Framium Heart Study, in which researchers have followed the life stories of a large group of people. So I'm really interested in all of human nature. And so one of the aspects that I'm interested in is social networks. And so my colleague, Nicholas Christakis, and I have looked at the Framingham Heart Study in which we've mapped the full social network of over 5,000 people. When you say social network, what does that actually mean? That means friendships. That means any kind of social relationship that you might have with another person. So some of these are family relationships, like your sibling, your parent, your child. Uh, some of these are um, relationships with, with people at work, your coworkers. Um, also relationships with people you live nearby, so your neighbors, your neighbors, the same block neighbors, next door neighbors, and so on. And how do you dissect apart these social networks? You can work out who is friends with who. Well, what happens is we um, got lucky in Framingham, actually, um, in order to keep people coming back year after year. This is a very long-standing epidemiological study. Um, in order to keep people uh, coming back year after year, they kept detailed administrative records, um, not just on their family members, but they also asked them to name a close friend who will know where you are two to four years from now. And so we got a grant to actually turn all of that into electronic data so we have all the different connections that people have to one another who are in the study. And then how did you interrogate that data? What did you find? 
Well, so we matched a lot of this data they already had about health attributes to the social network. And the very first place we looked was obesity. And uh, the reason why we, we started there is because that's a very easy thing to measure. Every time someone comes to the doctor every two to four years, they get on the scale, they get measured for height. It's a very objective, easily measured uh, attribute. Um, and we were very interested to see if something unexpected could flow through these social networks. And what we found was that if your friend becomes obese, it increases the likelihood that you'll become obese. And this was true for friends, it was true for spouses, and also for siblings. I can understand family, because of course people tend to eat together, therefore they tend to eat the same things in the same amounts. But how do you explain the friends? Well, one other sort of interesting finding that helps to explain that is that friends who lived hundreds of miles away appeared to have just as big an impact as friends who live next door. And so one possibility, if you found something like this, would be that what's going on is you are eating together, you're drinking together, you're exercising together. But the fact that the friends who live so far away also had an effect means that what we really think is happening is the spread of social norms. And so this is the idea that you may see your friend only once a year at Thanksgiving or something like that, and you see, hey, you know, this person's put on some weight. Maybe it's okay if I put on a little bit of weight. Or maybe they start talking about some exercise program that they've been doing, and it makes you think, you know, I really ought to get to the gym more often, and it changes your behavior. Someone wrote to me once and said that she pursues a relative diet where she brings in big bags of do donuts and cakes for everyone in the office because relative to them when they eat them all she stays slim. That's that's right and uh, there were uh, some of the more amusing commentaries to our work appeared in cartoons and one of them was a Kathy cartoon in which the three friends that they were talking very nervously about the, the study and saying well this doesn't mean that we have to stop being friends with each other and then when the waiter comes over they ask what will you have to eat and each points to the other saying well she'll have a salad and a water. So there was this idea that uh, I think some people were sort of worried from the study that people would take away some negative points from this, like you should get rid of your, your friends who are overweight. And in fact, the data suggests just the opposite, that, that you only um, spread these kinds of behaviors through close social contacts, and every close social contact actually makes us healthier. And so really, so the best thing you can do is take control over your own behavior, or alternatively, try to help your, your friend involved in taking control over their behavior. So if it is a sort of social factor and the spreading of social norms, the way that you say, if you look at things other than obesity... Do you see the same pattern emerging with other things? Well, we do see them emerging with a number of other things that we've studied. And so we had an, uh, a follow-up study looked at smoking behavior. So there again, we saw, just like with obesity, that if your friend quits smoking, it increases the likelihood that you'll quit smoking. But one interesting thing that we're starting to see in a variety of these studies is that it's not just your friend that matters. It's your friend's friend and even your friend's friend's friend. In other words, people we don't know and have never met can change their behavior, and it's going to ripple through the network and have an impact on us. Do you think you could get sued one day, then, for being fat and letting it rub off on your friends? Well, it's funny you say that. There's a program in the United States um, uh, called Boston Legal, and shortly after our paper came out last year, this was a plot line that one of the uh, main characters, who is this um, sort of sleazy character, he's played by William Shatner, actually, you know, the old Captain Kirk, he fired one of his secretaries because she was overweight. And then she came back and sued him for firing her. And his argument was, well, 
here are these guys from Harvard that told you that this person's going to make me fat, and so I ought to have a right to fire her for that reason. And the outcome? Um, I I don't know because I didn't watch the program. <laughs> I don't know whether or not she was found guilty, or I mean, I don't know like who who won the case, but I do know that it sort of raised this point that that seemed to be in the press a lot when people were discussing our work, which was what do you do with this information? And unfortunately, you know, a lot of people said what this means is that here are new criteria for getting rid of friends. I hope no one takes any of our research to mean that, because typically what we find is that every friend makes us better off. So the bottom line is that friends can make you fat, but that's not as bad for your health as being lonely. That was James Fowler, and he's a researcher based at UCSD. The reason that some of the naked scientists were in Los Angeles and San Diego is because we were the proud recipients of a global media award for best radio show. These awards are given by the Population Institute, which is a Washington DC-based organisation that aims to raise awareness about the issue of world population. Ben Valsler spoke with the Population Institute's president, Bill Ryerson, to find out how they're raising awareness about overpopulation, especially in the third world. Population Institute works with leadership groups to educate them and involve them in population issues. Population, in many ways, is the unmentioned elephant in the living room of global sustainability issues, and the Institute is there to remind people that 6.7 billion people growing to 9.2 billion people in a short 50 years is a huge factor in all of the issues uh, that the planet is facing. So how big really is the elephant? How fast is the world's population expanding? There are many ways to answer that question. You can say 1%, and people say, well, 1%, that doesn't seem like very much. I earn more than that on my money market funds. But on the other hand, 1% means the population is doubling every 70 years. And when you have such a huge population, now four times what it was a century ago, and it doubles in just 70 years, the impact is huge in terms of planetary resources. So population is a driver of almost everything else with regard to both environmental and food security and international security issues. So what can be done about the rising rate of growing population? One of the key barriers to solving the population problem has to do with perceptions by people and information or misinformation that they may have. For example, among the roughly 130 million couples who don't want to have additional children and are not using contraception, maybe 2% give lack of access to services as their reason for non-use of contraception. The primary reasons are they've heard it's dangerous. They have no idea that having 10 children starting at age 15 is far more dangerous. They also cite male opposition. They think their husband or partner is opposed. They think their religion is opposed. Now, it may come as a surprise to listeners, but There is no religion that is opposed to planning one's family or to planning one's life. No religion is telling their followers to have more children than they can afford to feed or care for. So religious opposition is something that people mistakenly believe is a factor, and also fatalism. Many women, when asked how many children they would like to have, say, I want no more than I currently have because I can't feed the ones I have, And then they're asked, well, do you understand because you're not using family planning that you could become pregnant and have another child? And they'll say, 
Oh, well, that would be okay, because if that's God's will, then that's why I'm here. And it's as if God has determined since the beginning of the universe how many children they are going to have. Changing those cultural and informational barriers to family planning use is critically important. How do we do that? We're role modeling small family norms, use of family planning, elevation of women's status, daughter education, and similar measures through long-running serialized melodramas, what's called soap operas for social change. And these programs, which will go on for months and years, can create characters who ultimately find their way to a, a new set of values, new behaviors. They realize in front of massive audiences the benefits of those behaviors, and they change social norms. Among the roughly 50% of married women in Ethiopia who were listening to one of our serial dramas, there was a tripling of family planning use. Similarly, we measured a quadrupling of HIV testing among male listeners and a tripling among female listeners. So these programs can be very influential, particularly if they're well-written, if they attract huge audiences that follow episode after episode and follow the evolution of these characters, see the benefits for the characters, and decide without ever being told what to do that indeed this is a strategy they should try. Truly amazing statistics. That was Bill Ryerson talking with Ben Vausler about the work of the Population Institute. But what are the Global Media Awards and why did we win one? Ben also spoke with the Population Institute's Jenny Wetter. The Global Media Awards are an opportunity for the Population Institute to congratulate and encourage reporting of population and population-related issues, such as how population affects environment, security, food availability, and a whole slew of issues around population. It gives us an opportunity to look at various outlets, including film, newspaper, radio, obviously, and hopefully encourage more media outlets to pick up and do more work in this area. Now, media is quite a big world, uh, and as it's global media, you have a huge range of people to look at. The winners were not only from the States and from the UK, but also from the Philippines, as far away as that. So how do you actually choose in the first place who to look at, even for a short list? We send out a call for entries around the world, We go to various outlets. We just kind of put it out there to whoever is going to answer it. We had entries from most of the continents. We had several entries from Africa, the Philippines, so in Asia, um, Europe. Actually, I don't think we had any from South America this year, but it's a great opportunity to highlight people doing things all over the world. And how do you choose who will win? We brought together all of our entries, and we had seven different judges, and each judge was responsible for two to three categories. We had two judges per category. They ranked all the entries that they had in each category, and the two judges would then confer on their list of ranked entries. And if they agreed, then they were done, and if they didn't agree, then they would talk about why they favored this one over that one, and then the judges ultimately came to a decision. So how many nominations did you have? How many did you start with? This year we had 161 entries from most continents around the world, so it was great. And already we know that the geographical remit is is huge. It's a global award system. But do people have to specifically work on population issues? Or do you reward the efforts of people who look at things in a more broad way and just happen to focus on the population as part of perhaps one particular blog post or one particular issue? I think The Naked Scientist is a really great example of someone who doesn't necessarily focus solely on population issues but looks at science issues as a whole. And while some of their 
talks may talk about population, you don't need to focus solely on population. It's great to bring in these audiences that maybe aren't as familiar with population issues to get to be more familiar with them. Jenny Wetter, and you can find out more about the Population Institute and how to enter for a Global Media Award on their website. That's at populationinstitute.org. Something that a growing population depends on, of course, is food, and that ultimately means plants. So scientists are trying to understand what makes plants tick. And I mean that quite literally, because like us, it turns out, plants have body clocks that affect the way they grow. Steve Kay. What our lab principally studies is biological rhythms in plants. Of course, people understand biological rhythms or circadian rhythms really from the the jet lag they experience, such as the BBC team might be feeling coming to San Diego. Um, Plants also have these 24-hour rhythms, but of course they don't have a sleep-wake cycle like humans have. What plants do is control their metabolism, their photosynthesis rates, and what we've discovered recently is plants actually grow rhythmically. So when does a plant do most of its growth? Because most people presume plants need sunlight to grow, they're therefore going to grow during the day and they go to sleep at night. Well, yes, that's quite right. Plants do need sunlight for energy through photosynthesis, But what we and others have discovered in recent years is that the vast majority of plants on this planet actually grow at night. Why? We're not exactly sure why. It could potentially be that DNA synthesis, which is, of course, has to happen every time you divide plant cells and grow, perhaps DNA synthesis needs to occur in the dark to protect it from damage. It could be something like this. Presumably, if you understand how plants grow, you can grow bigger ones. Well, absolutely. So, look, there are lots of numbers in science, but the two numbers that really worry me the most are 6.5 billion, the number of people that there are now, and 9 billion, the likely number of people in 2050. We're going to be facing a serious food crisis. So what we really want to understand is what makes plants tick? What are the processes that make plants grow better, compete in their environment better, use nutrients more efficiently? And what we're discovering is is that the plant's biological clock is at the center of all of these processes, regulating plant growth. How do plants detect time? We know how humans do it relatively well. We know that there are clusters of nerve cells in the brain that have this sort of genetic domino effect, which keeps time. So how do plants do it? So plants don't have a localized clock like we do in our brain. Plants have distributed their clock into every cell. So for a human, our clock is reset by light entering through our eyes. Well, although this may sound a little creepy, there are eyes in every cell of the plant. They have special proteins that transmit light to the clock and reset the clock every day. The plants are interesting because looking at the ones you've got on your shelf here, they have flowers which means that certain bits of this plant know it's now time for me to make a flower. So how does the plant tell one bit of the plant, okay, stop growing leaves and start growing modified leaves called flowers? Well, yes, it's a fascinating story. Plants um, use their leaves to tell daily time and to really measure the amount of light that's around. They combine the measurement of dawn and dusk with an internal timekeeper to actually discriminate day length. So these plants that are sitting next to us can actually tell when the days are getting shorter because they're short-day plants, and that will induce flowering. Other plants are long-day plants. As they measure the days getting longer, they send a signal to the tip of the plant, and they start making flowers. Does this mean, then, that plants from one part of the world, which are well adapted to a certain day length because they've evolved there, if you take them to another latitude, will grow less well? 
Yes, absolutely. If you take plants from one cline or, or latitude and, and bring them to another, then they're not going to be able to correctly interpret the day length signals and they're going to be less well adapted to that niche. And what we really want to understand is how can we begin to take advantage of what we're learning about plant growth mechanisms really to have an impact on agriculture. What about climate change, though? If, if we assume that the environment's going to change and therefore plants may have to grow in different environments and different latitudes in future, but they're unable to reset their clocks, how are they going to compensate? Because we think climate change is going to happen more quickly than these plants have evolved in the first place. Well, climate change is going to be a significant challenge both for natural ecosystems as well as for man-made agro agricultural biology. So what we need to do is understand the basic mechanisms by which plants adapt to stress, adapt to light levels, adapt to temperature, measure day length, and essentially what we're going to be able to do from an agricultural perspective is to have tailor-made crops that will be able to adapt to the new types of environments produced by climate change. And how easy is that to do? It's very hard. It's going to require, I think, a lot more effort in plant biology in general. Here in the United States, for example, we spend less than 1% of the federal research budget on plant science versus biomedicine. So all plants have a body clock, not just time. Boom. Thanks to Steve Kay from UCSD for showing me around his laboratory forest, as he calls it. Now, we're always being told that size doesn't matter, but it does to a nanoscientist. And Ben Valsler met up with Michael Saylor to find out how he's exploiting the power of the very tiny. So we work on nanomaterials, primarily silicon or iron oxide-based materials. So these are devices or materials that are so small they often can't be seen by the human eye or they just look like little specks and they have structures inside them that are built at the nanoscale. So when we say nanoscale I know this is really quite a cliche now but how big would these be in comparison to a human hair? Yeah so about a thousand times smaller than a human hair. The real challenge with nanotechnology is to build a very sophisticated structure into a small space the reason you want to make the small space for environmental sensing is because those smaller spaces allow you to do things that you can't do with bigger things. For example, we, we make sensors that can go in the body that have to be small enough to fit inside a needle. For environmental sensing, you really don't need to have something quite that small. And typically the materials we work with at the uh, environmental sensing area are large enough to see, maybe the size of a coin, but they contain a nanostructure. For example, uh, we make these chips that have very small nanopores in them. And these very small pores kind of suck up molecules very effectively. It's a phenomenon known as microcapillary condensation, is that if you have a very small pore, typically on the order of about a nanometer, then vapors will spontaneously condense in those pores. And so it's a means of concentrating the, the gas that you're trying to sense. Once you have been able to concentrate it, how can you tell what you have there? These are uh, little silicon-based chips, uh, so each one of these is about the size of a coin. And you can see that they have a very pretty color to them, uh, intense green, blue, or red colors. Uh, the colors derive from the nanostructure. What's more is that color will change. So I've got a, a little bottle of uh, ethanol here. If I put a drop on this chip, you'll see the color will change from green to red. It has immediately changed. This is just what looks like a glass microscope slide. But it immediately changed in response to ethanol. Now, is it possible to get rid of the ethanol and use that slide again? 
as you look at it, you'll see the ethanol will evaporate away and it'll come back. So it's a reversible sensor. And the really cool thing about this is that the material is changing color from green to red. And so the gas or the toxin when it gets into the chip is giving you a red color. Red means stop and green means go. And so it has a very simple mnemonic feature to it. Why is that? Uh, The reason that it has a color is because of its nanostructure. And so if we didn't have that nanostructure there, everything here would look white. It would just be clear, and you wouldn't be able to tell that there was a chemical there. So that's really one of the advantages of having a nanostructure, building the nanostructure this way, is that it allows us to get a much more high-fidelity measurement. For example, if this ethanol were spilled on the table, you maybe you'd be able to smell it, but let's say you were at a distance and you didn't want to be smelling it. Um, how would you tell whether that's ethanol or water? Um, if we put a water drop on that chip, it won't change color at all. So the chemistry inside this chip also has an ability to distinguish between those two molecules. And it gives you an immediate answer as well. It tells you immediately that there is ethanol present. In fact, the ethanol must have all evaporated by now because that's gone back to being a vivid green. Now, what sort of limitations do we have? What can we actually use these sensors to detect? Well, we do a lot of work in biological sensing and uh, and chemical sensing. So what tricks can you play with this nanostructure to cause the color to change when it only sees something like sarin gas? That's the nerve agent that was used in the Tokyo subway bombing. It's a kind of terrorist uh, weapon of of the day. So how do you detect a nerve agent? Or how do you detect whether it's an anthrax spore or it's an Ebola virus? What you need to use is some kind of chemistry or biochemistry to get you that specificity. So, for example, in the case of these chips, uh, to make a biosensor out of them, one of the common tricks we'll play is we'll place an antibody inside the pores. And this antibody may be very specific for certain kinds of molecules. For example, we've got a a system we're developing for cholera toxin where we could detect cholera in drinking water based on putting an antibody in the pores that specifically binds just to that toxin and to nothing else. If we're looking for gas phase molecules, we play other tricks. So, for example, the sarin detector that I mentioned, to detect uh, that kind of chemical, we place a specific catalyst in the pores, a copper-based catalyst, that will react fairly specifically with the sarin and create products that react very uniquely with the structure and cause a color change that we can detect. Michael Saylor from UCSD talking to Ben Vausler. If you listen to The Naked Scientists on a regular basis, then you might remember us inviting you to join us for lunch at the Naked Cafe overlooking Solana Beach in San Diego. One of the people who came along, and hello also to Gail, who popped by, was cosmologist Hans Parr. Someone very generous recently gave him funding to build a brand new telescope in Chile so he can solve one of the ultimate questions about how we all got here. We are pretty sure that the universe began with a big explosion of space and the evidence that we know uh, and see around this all confirm that it started with what we call a Big Bang. When roughly did that happen? We know quite precisely when it happened because we can use the laws of physics to extrapolate from the present condition back to the beginning. And it is approximately 13.6 billion years. That is billion with a B. So ever since then, we think the universe has been expanding outward. So does that mean then you could notionally wind time back and find the point where the universe began? That's an interesting thought, and in fact, that is how we calculate the age of the universe, by running the movie backwards, so to speak. 
that one of the principles of the cosmological uh, theory that describes the universe's early beginnings is that there is no space where it began. It, or to put it another way, there's no location where you can point to and say, here is where it began. It began everywhere at the same time. So that's a very hard notion to, to, to get a hold of, but nevertheless, we firmly believe that this is true. So the universe begins as one very, very powerful but very, very tiny point, and suddenly something happens and it begins to expand. Does that happen uniformly after that, then? Uh, the expansion happened suddenly, and uh, it didn't happen uniformly. We think that in the very early beginning of the expansion, there was an era which we call inflation, where the universe expanded extremely rapidly with velocities that exceeded the speed of light by many, many factors. And then after about a very short time, the universe resumed its normal expansion as we observe today. So how would we get to the bottom of why there would have been that two phases, though? Because when there's a sudden burst of energy, one would assume that things would just expand. So why should it behave in this interesting way? This is uh, completely unknown at the moment. There are speculations, but we have no real evidence. And I hope to further uh, the field by eliminating at least some of the hypotheses about inflation by my experiment. So what are you going to do? We have obtained funding, my colleagues and myself, for a telescope which is dedicated to observing the radiation that was emitted during the inflationary era. And we will very carefully study the properties of that radiation, in particular something called polarization. And the polarization is supposed to carry the imprint of the inflationary era with it. So you're looking at radiation left over from the Big Bang. This is, this is cosmic background radiation that you're going to study. And written into that is the fingerprint of what happened in the early universe. So how will you get that out of the cosmic background radiation then? This is by studying the polarization of the light. Polarization of light is something everybody's familiar with because we all have Polaroid sunglasses and we have all been on the beach one time or another in our lives. And when you look at the water surface with your Polaroid glasses and you were to rotate the glasses, um, you will see dark and light areas. This is because the Polaroid sunglasses let through Polaroid light only polarized in one direction. Our telescope is just like that, except it's not sunglasses, it is 10 feet, 3 meters in diameter, our sunglasses, so to speak. We catch the radiation with that very big dish, and we measure then the polarization by essentially doing the same thing I just described with the small sunglasses. And what will you be looking for that will tell you whether or not this theory of this sudden inflation and then a slower inflation is actually right or not? What we will look, be looking for is the polarization itself. If the polarization is found, then we know pretty sure that inflation did happen. So it's kind of a negative uh, confirmation. If you, see, if you don't see it, we know nothing. But if we do see the polarization, then we are pretty sure inflation happened. It sounds to me like the Large Hadron Collider, the most expensive experiment in the history of physics. And if we don't see anything, it doesn't actually prove anything. <laughs> But if you do detect polarization, this still doesn't tell you why it happened. Have you got any theories as to why it could have happened? That's entirely correct. When we measure the polarization, we will know it did happen very likely, but we will not really know why it happened yet. More experimentation will be needed to find that out. And how will you solve that one? I don't know. This is something 
that we haven't thought about it very much yet because we first need to establish that inflation did happen before we worry about why it happened, because perhaps we will find it didn't happen. And that's the beauty of science. There was UCSD cosmologist Hans Parr talking to me over lunch at the Naked Cafe in San Diego. And I should point out that, as someone mentioned to me, there's also a Naked Cafe, which is a strip club. So for the avoidance of doubt, we were in the cafe. Honest. But would you know if I was lying? Diana O'Carroll. This week I've got my honest socks on to answer this question. Hello, I'm Brian from North Yorkshire. After watching an episode of Mythbusters recently in which the presenters tried to outwit a lie detector, the question arose in our house as to whether someone with a psychiatric disorder could successfully pass a lie detector test. As some of them don't apparently feel uh, remorse guilt for their wrongdoings, would they register abnormal readings when asked sensitive questions? So, could a real lie detector get around psychopathy, for example? I'm Jim O'Shea from the Intelligent Systems Group at Manchester Metropolitan University. Old-fashioned lie detectors like the polygraph and voice stress systems only detect stress. So if the lack of remorse meant that the interviewees had reduced stress levels, that would help them pass. Our lie detector, Silent Talker, makes its judgment based on non-verbal behaviour, crudely what people call body language. Silent Talker can detect stress, but lying involves other factors. We can only juggle a certain number of mental variables at once while we're thinking. So if we've got to try and maintain a whole load of different factors about uh, an imaginary story, it's very difficult to do all the mental processing to keep that consistent. And that's what's known as having a high cognitive load, which affects nonverbal behavior. Also, duping delight occurs when liars get a kick out of putting a lie across successfully. And again, this affects nonverbal behavior. In one of our own experiments on the general population, we taught Silent Talker to recognize guilty feelings the participants felt while they were lying. When we added this information to the general lie detection, we got more accurate classifications. In another independent study conducted by a different university using Silent Talker, it was found that Silent Talker was effective in detecting lies told by psychopaths in interviews. So there we have it, evidence that remorse is a factor in the general population but also evidence that in the case of one disorder, it's not the only factor. So it seems that the new generation of lie detectors can actually detect a lie, no matter who said it. And on our forum, RD said that someone with an antisocial personality disorder, or a sociopath, might become anxious about the consequences of their actions, and therefore fail a polygraph. JNA also brought up the point that disorders that bring about illusions could also be useful for detector beating. Well, from lies to policemen to laughing policemen, just what is so funny? Hiya, this is Scarlett Taylor calling from South Wales. I'd like to know exactly what it is that makes us physically laugh when we find something funny. Thank you. What's the point of laughing? Why not be a grumpy old man or woman? Let us know by emailing chris at thenakedscientist.com or write us on our forum at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. And please, no one write in to say that the naked scientists are a laughing stock. Thank you, Diana. Time now to wind your mind back to the sticky tape experiment that we were doing earlier. Only this time, we're going up a gear. Ben Valsler. Welcome back to our special kitchen science from UCLA. What we asked you to do earlier was find the darkest room in your house, cut out all the sources of light, let your eyes get used to it, and then unwind some sellotape, keeping a close eye on where the tape meets the roll. So, Carlos, what should people have seen if they managed to make this work? Well, what you see is a beautiful 
blue light coming from where the tape separates from the roll. It's a phenomenon related to tribal luminescence, which is the emission of light from separating materials and rubbing materials together. It's a beautiful light. So you actually do get a blue glow from this, but how does that work? Surely you're not putting enough energy in there to actually make it light up. It turns out you're putting a lot of mechanical energy, but that's still remarkable that you're converting mechanical energy just by unsticking the tape into visible photons. That's remarkable. It's amazing. And it's beautiful, too. And if people have used different types of sticky tape at home, you said you get a blue light from your scotch tape. Would you find that different chemicals would give you different lights? Quite possibly. To be honest, though, we haven't tried all the tapes out there, but I I recommend people should try it. Why not? And tell us uh, maybe some are pink, some are bluer, some are greener. I don't know. And if people don't have any tape, is there anything else they can use, anything similar? Well, there are many, many things that uh, tribal luminesce. For example, if you break winter green candy, it glows green. And uh, sugar cubes also work, and they're, it's much, much dimmer, but there are many things that when you rub or you break, they make light. Or even uh, Band-Aids, when you separate Band-Aids, that sticky side of the Band-Aid can also make light. And I believe also self-adhesive envelopes work in exactly the same way. Correct, that's right. That's another great example. So this is what people can do at home, but is there some way that we can take this a step further? Well, that's exactly what we try to do, and... Uh, By placing this roll of scotch tape in a vacuum chamber, that is, we wanted to remove the air around the tape and peel it in a more controlled environment and then look to see what kind of photons were coming out. To our great surprise, we found out that you're not only getting visible photons, but you're also getting X-ray photons, meaning photons with a lot more energy, about 10,000 times more energy. It's actually a powerful radiation source, it turns out. So people obviously shouldn't try and do this at home, but can we do this today? Yes, we can do it. You're at the right place to do it. We are set up for it. We've been studying this, and uh, we recently published a paper on it in Nature magazine on all the most advanced measurements we could do of the radiation coming out of just plain old sticky tape. So now we're at the lab. We're looking at the vacuum chamber inside which we have a roll of tape, and we're going to unwind it inside the vacuum. The vacuum chamber is uh, about uh, a foot in diameter. It's a cylinder, and the pressure inside is about uh, one ten-thousandth of an atmosphere. And you have the tape on a special motor so you can control the speed at which it unwinds. Um, Should we switch it on and see what happens? All right, uh, let's see. Well, here it goes. So there's the motor. It's peeling it at, say, about five uh, centimeters per second. Um, Not very fast, but uh, there we are. How do you know that there are definitely X-rays coming off that? Okay, well, there are many ways we can see it, but the best way for a radio audience is a Geiger counter. This is a radiation detector. You can hear some of the blips there from cosmic rays. There we go. Now we're putting it right on top of where the tape is unwinding, outside the vacuum chamber. And here we go. We'll turn it on now. That is incredible. (laughs) I mean, that's an awful lot of x-rays coming out of this one roll of sticky tape. Could you use that medically? Could you manage to x-ray a bone with that? 
We've been able to do so. To our surprise, the properties of this radiation are incredible in terms of the physics of it, how these X-ray photons come out, and that's what we've been working on, but also in the amount of X-ray photons that come out. There's so many that you could put your hand where this Geiger counter is and put an X-ray detector on the other side of your hand, and you'll actually get an X-ray image of the bones in your hand. That's fantastic. So why should the vacuum make a difference? Why does the vacuum mean that instead of getting visible light, we're getting x-rays? Well, there are a few reasons, but mainly it's because when you separate the tape, a lot of charges are being separated from the sticky side of the tape to the other side of the tape. And when you have gas molecules around, then you get these discharges between the two sides, And these discharges are basically miniature lightning strikes. And these electrons are flying from one side of the tape to the other. But as they do so, they strike gas particles and they slow down. So actually peeling the tape apart creates really a potential difference. There's a difference in the charge from one side to the other. And this means that we get a little spark jumping across. So when there are gas molecules there, it slows them down. But what's the process of getting the light out? Okay, so the the gas molecules slow the electrons down so that when they hit the other side and stop, the total energy that they have accumulated in their path is not that high, but it's high enough to make visible light, and that's what you're seeing in the dark room. But if you remove the gas from in between, then these electrons have the chance to accelerate to the full potential available to them. And then they go really fast without hitting any particles until they hit the other side of the tape, and they're going so fast that when they stop, an X-ray comes out. So it's all to do with the fact that the deceleration when it hits the other side is so much quicker when there's no air there. That it's a bit like if you're driving your car and you hit a tree at 90 miles an hour instead of at 30 miles an hour when there's air there. Absolutely. It's actually the same for using your same comparison. It's like a guy that jumps up in a parachute. At some point, they don't go any faster. That's because the air is slowing them down. So it's the same thing that's happening to the electrons. If you didn't have any air there, the parachuter will keep going faster and faster and faster, and then they'll hit the ground at going at a much faster speed. And that wouldn't be very comfortable for anybody, I think. Well, Carlos, thank you ever so much. I will uh, leave you to play with your sellotape, but what's the next thing that you're working on? How do you hope to take this forward? Well, surely we'll continue to play with the sellotape, as you say, and try all sorts of different tapes. Really, we're trying to make something useful out of it, something that you can actually use to take X-ray images of bones or other things in a very, very inexpensive way. Carlos Camera from UCLA helping Ben there with this week's Kitchen Science. Well, that's it for this week. Next time, we're back on home territory and we'll be taking a look at the science of sight. So we'll be exploring the workings of the visual system and also finding out how stem cells can help to repair a damaged retina. I must say a very big thank you, though, to Larry Bock, who arranged for us to talk to a lot of the people you've heard in this week's show. So thank you, Larry. And Larry is also organising the San Diego Science Festival, which kicks off next year. You can find out about that on his website at sdsciencefestival.com. Additional production this week was by Ben Valsler, and I'm Chris Smith. Until next time, goodbye. The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com. Listener.